Our scripture reading this morning is drawn from Psalm 104, but my plan for the sermon is actually to walk through that psalm piece by piece and kind of give an overview to it. So I'm going to intermesh the scripture reading and the sermon because otherwise I'd read it and then read it again, which would be kind of uh, elongating the process. But Psalm 104 is a beautiful survey of God's rule over his creation. In the first four verses, you see that the Lord is seated on a throne. It's pictured as having its, its roots in the, the clouds above, and he is ruling over all of his creation. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. Moving on from this picture of the Lord ruling over creation, the psalmist takes us to the initial act of creation when God, by his very word, brings out of the water everything that will be. That is verse 5 through 9. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever, you covered it, as, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains, they went down into the valleys, to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Having shown us this beginning moment of creation which came out of water, the psalmist's mind is turned to the concept of water, and water is the most precious item on earth, and the psalmist begins to picture how the Lord is Lord over its distribution. Beginning again in verse 10, we read, He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. Having now thought about water and what it does, the psalmist then thinks about providence for all living beings and again assigns that to the Lord. He's sending the water, but... From the water comes really everything else that God is doing, and he blesses all living beings. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the hearts of men, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. Oh. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted. Where the birds make their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. 
God is Lord in this psalm over everything that is in the physical world. What you need, what you have to survive on, and even the patterns of day and night, the psalmist assigns to God's hand that he is doing that. As the verses go on in 19 through 23, we read, He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness, and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. God can do all this and does do all this because creation is his possession. He owns it with everything that that implies. Verse 24 through 26 read, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great, there the ships sell about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. All life on earth, every living being, everything that has breath, absolutely depends upon God being active and doing something. The psalm continues, These all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Life, death, and everything having to do with it is in God's hand, and he is not passive. All of life is absolutely rooted in God's action. And as we move down towards the ending of the psalm, the psalm brings us to view God as worthy of worship because of everything he's doing in creation. His rule, the giving of water, the assigning of water, the assigning of providence, the giving new life in a new generation, all of that draws the psalmist to praise the Lord in verse 31 through 34. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the Lord. It's a fairly long psalm. Historically, Christians have reveled in it. It has been a classic treatise from the Holy Spirit himself about God and how he works in creation. But in these more modern times, you don't tend to hear this psalm explicated from the pulpit that much. Now, you may hear this psalm, but it's in little bits and pieces. It's in kind of hallmark greeting card bits, and it's not delivered in its fullness. It's not delivered in the totality of its message. Psalm 139 is very similar to it. We began our worship singing Psalm 139, 
And just like I went through Psalm 104, I'm going to go through Psalm 139 too, and we're going to look at what God is saying there. In Psalm 104, we saw God's creation, his providence, his renewal, his presence in creation. What does Psalm 139 say? Well, breaking it down, uh, he begins with describing to us God's omnipotence. God knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Sure, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. So Psalm 139, like Psalm 104, pictures a very present God. Uh, He knows all things, and a lot of this knowledge is, in fact, existential. He's experiencing it because he's literally everywhere where you are. He knows everything about you, and wherever you are, there he is. Uh, His omnipresence becomes even more significant as we go into the psalm in verse uh, 7 through 12. The psalmist writes, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. God sees everything. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. And this is only natural because God is the creator. The creation came from him. And just like Psalm 104 said, when he sends forth his spirit and renews the face of the earth, this is a continual process, Psalm 139 turns to that too, and the psalmist begins to think about where he came from himself, and he was part of that renewing of the earth. God sent forth his spirit, and in a very individual way, God was present for his being created in the womb. God was specifically individualistically, creating David in the womb. Moving on into verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as of yet there was none of them. Having confessed that he is a unique work of the hand of God in the womb, and the reference, by the way, to in the earth is a reference to the womb because it's a 
reference back to man's original creation, which was God made him out of dust. And so we're all made of dust, so the psalmist is picturing the womb as dust, because that's where people come from. But having uh, shown that, that God created him at first individually, he then begins to think about what God thinks about him. Does, does God create and then just kind of let go and go into the world? Well, no. God creates and has a, a very specific plan for what he creates. Going on further, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, how great the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more than the number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. As the psalm comes to a close, the psalmist here, just like in 104, builds to a crescendo of praise for God God has been seen as all-knowing, all-present, again, like in Psalm 104, totally active in his creation, taking a very specific hand in everything that happens there. And the psalm ends, beginning in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So the psalmist here makes his worship of God, his obedience to God. God has created him, knows everything about him, is Lord of everything happening around him, is good, has him in mind, and the psalmist dedicates himself to his obedience. Psalm 139 has classically been a psalm that Christians have reveled in. It has spoken of God's creation and his relation to it. But Today, from the pulpit, it is rare to hear the psalm explicated in its totality. Now, you may find references to parts of it, again, in sort of Hallmark-esque kind of bits, because the psalm is very positive, just like Psalm 104 is very positive, but rarely will you hear Psalm 139 explained in its totality, just like you won't hear Psalm 104 explained in its totality. Why not? Why have these passages kind of begun to slide back from the Christian conscience? Well, there really are two main reasons The first one is, we have imbibed the philosophy of the world in which we tend to live and move and have our being, and that philosophy says, and now we don't say this verbally, and we don't say this doctrinally, we don't don't verbalize this at all, but in our thoughts, we kind of buy into the world's way of thinking about creation, which is this. Creation is built out of natural laws. The entirety of the scientific process tells us that and rests upon that, and we do tend to assume that, and there's no reason not to assume it. But having accepted that, which is the truth we then make a very large step of faith and say, 
natural law is the totality of what is. Time, matter, gravity, age, all these laws that make up creation, they are everything. And they are unchangeable. They are immutable. They are what is, and that's really what is. And so effectively, not creedally, but effectively, we become deists. Deism is a uh, religious philosophy that in history comes up again and again, and then it dies out because deism doesn't have a lot of staying power, but it comes up in eras and becomes very popular at certain times. Deism says there is a God, and he is even the creator in a way, But he has wound up his universe, he has made it as it is, and given it the laws, and then he has stepped back from his creation, and he is not an active participant in it, really. He is watching his handiwork take place. Some 20 years ago, there was a very popular song that was called From a Distance, and it was on the radio all the time, and even... Uh, a number of religious people embraced the song and said, this is really profound. Uh, I, I don't encounter people now who, who have heard the song, but at the time, it was very, very popular. And the song was, from a distance, God is watching us from a distance. And the lyrics basically pictured God as being fairly entertained by watching people do what they do. But he is not active. He is watching from a distance. He's not like in Psalm 104, where his, his royal chambers are seated upon the clouds, and he is royally decreeing what happens underneath him. He is not actively giving the animals their sustenance. He's not actively controlling the weather. He is not actively making the patterns that happen on earth happen. He's watching from a distance. He's not like in Psalm 139, where he is actively molding and shaping children in the womb to be what he wants them to be. He is not the artist who is making them each one individual and unique. He's not everywhere you are. He's watching from a distance. God exists, but he is not really all that active. Thirty years ago, I was seated in a seminary classroom at an evangelical seminary. And Dr. Frank Tupper, who was one of the tenured professors there, uh, from his position of teaching authority spent an entire semester teaching me and the rest of the class that God is and God is powerless. And he taught this very, very actively. Frank Tupper had begun his life in religion. I I won't call it a ministry. He had begun his life in religion effectively as an evangelical and effectively embracing the idea that God can do all his holy will, that he is all-powerful. But 
Tupper had a number of things happen to him which convinced him that wasn't true. Uh, he had married happily, and his wife had gotten sick. And Dr. Tupper, as any good evangelical would, took his uh, situation to the Lord. Lord, please heal my wife. Well, God didn't, and Frank Tupper's wife died. Some years later, there was a seminarian at Southern Baptist, and this young man was very uh, talented. He was very gifted. Everybody thought that this young man would be a gift to God's church. Uh, he, he was definitely a faithful believer. And yet, while he was in seminary, he developed cancer, just like Frank's wife had developed cancer. And as evangelicals, they took the young man to the Lord, and the whole campus did. It became kind of a, a cause de celeb of the, the seminary. We've got to lift this young man to the Lord. We, we need to uphold him in prayer. And they all did that, and he died very young and having never been in ministry. And so Frank decided, I know there's a God because creation is sitting here. And it is still a very intellectually bankrupt position to say uh, the world exists and nobody created it and it's always been here and it has no beginning because we live in a world of causality. And Frank was honest enough to say, yeah, I don't believe that. There had to have been a creator but the creator is obviously not active in the world anymore. So he spent the entire semester teaching us God is watching, and he's got a real emotional heart. He cares about what happens, but God can't really do anything. God has made a situation where he can hurt with you, but he's not active in creation. He's not really doing anything, and if you pray to him, hoping he'll do something, well, you're barking up the wrong tree because God doesn't do that. And as I said, Frank was at an established, respected evangelical seminary. That is not Christianity, that is deism. And it's also intellectually bankrupt. If you believe that God created then doesn't that mean that God is more powerful, and one might even say more real, than his creation? And if creation is made of natural laws and God made creation, what does that say about natural laws, about time, gravity, and all those good things? Are they eternal and unmutable if God made them? Well, the answer has to be no. Time itself and uh, the, the qualities of physics, all of that is a creation of God. Everything about creation, God spoke into being, and if God created it, then doesn't he have the power to alter it? Doesn't he have the power to step into it? Doesn't he have the power to set it aside should he decide to do so? The biblical answer is yes. The biblical worldview can be seen in Psalm 104. It can be seen in Psalm 139. The Lord is above his creation. The Lord 
is able to be active in his creation. The Lord wants to be active in his creation. God is here and he is not silent. But we live in a world that is radically naturalistic and we buy into it to the level where functionally we kind of become deists. Not creedally, not verbally, but actively. And so the the church kind of steps back from Psalm 104 and Psalm 139 and uh, makes them more fuzzy, takes bits and pieces of them that you can put on a Hallmark card, but doesn't really take their message in total. But that's only one of two major reasons this is happening. The other reason has to do with the verses from both Psalms I haven't read yet. If you go back to Psalm 104, Psalm 104 finishes with verse 35 of the psalm. And I didn't read that, but I'm going to read it now. The psalmist has shown us the glory of God's creation and his goodness, has shown him providing for all living beings. It's been very positive. And then the last verse is, May sinners be consumed from the earth, and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. So the average evangelical is reading through Psalm 104, and he may very well be very pious. He may very well have a warm and emotional faith in God, and he may, in fact, be a dedicated creationist. And this psalm is feeding his spirit, and suddenly he hits the last verse where... There are sinners in the earth. May they be consumed. Some of those sinners are even wicked people. May God blast them out of existence. And then it closes with praise the Lord. Well, the average evangelical trips over that like a man running and tripping on a rock. Or this is the way that Psalm 139 ends. And we have already heard this because we sang it, but I'm going to read it again. Uh, The ending is verse 23 through 24, and I read that, but right before you get there is verse 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Loathe. Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Again, the evangelical is reading Psalm 139. Uh, He's heard a part of it because it may be right to life Sunday. And part of it was preached on. And so he's gone and he's read the psalm and suddenly he gets to near the end And this beautiful psalm about God knowing you and being where you are and knitting you together in your mother's womb suddenly comes to a crescendo where you are telling God, I hate the wicked, and I want you to absolutely destroy them. And my hatred of them, my loathing of them, I love that word, it just just has such a feeling to it. My loathing of them is perfect. And this is the psalm. And you're an evangelical Christian. You're dedicated to Christ. You're a member of the church. And these words hit you like you're running into a wall. 
and you think, you know, everything about this psalm being like a Hallmark card just vanished. And on top of that, it, you know, it's got a certain mean spirit to it, I think. And on top of that, I don't know how to integrate this with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm going to take very seriously because I am a servant of Jesus, and well, I should. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew, uh, in verse 43 through 47, we have the Lord saying this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? So I'm a New Testament Christian, and I take the words of Jesus very seriously. And in his sermon, he says, Now, in times past, you have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and you should hate your enemy. But, but I'm telling you, you should love your enemy. So how does that mesh with Psalm 104 or Psalm 139? Well, let's think about that for a second. Is love and hatred actual polar opposites? It's the way we generally think about it, and Christ presents it as people thinking that way. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So the Lord is saying there are people out there who do, in fact, view this in polar opposites, so that if you love someone, you cannot hate them, and if you hate them, you cannot love them. But then he says, I say to you, love your enemies. I've done a lot of marriage counseling. When a husband and wife come in to be counseled, and I'm waiting for them to come in, and I'm, I'm watching from my office window, and they arrive in two different cars because they can't stand each other. And when they see each other, they shout at one another and they throw things before they come in to, to see me. I have a very good feeling about how things are going to go. I'm actually positive. They absolutely hate each other. I can work with that. At one time, they truly deeply loved one another... And now there is something that is generating a deep hatred, but there is a passion there, there is an emotion there. It is quite possible to love and hate someone simultaneously. Again, if you're married, you probably know how this works. The polar opposite of love and the polar opposite of hatred is actually indifference. When a couple comes in and they're very, very polite to one another and they're very calm and, and there's no 
raging passion there at all. It's just very calm and cold. These are usually the marriages I can't help. Because indifference is death. But love and hate, they can bleed together pretty well. If you believe that hatred of the wicked, if you believe that hatred of sinners is inherently off the table, you are effectively more spiritual than God. And that's a direct quote from C.S. Lewis. Now, he was talking about something else. But I was reading his letters to an American lady some time ago, and he made that comment. She was talking about the doctrine of what happens in communion, and uh, he, he told her, you know, your spiritual doctrine is such that you actually are more spiritual than God is. And why this is significant is, I just read to you what Christ said about, uh, you know, love your enemies. Well, it comes to a head in verse 48, which you didn't read yet. Verse 48 reads, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, love your enemies takes you to God as the example, and Jesus says now, be like the Father, and in fact, be perfectly like Him. And the Father is actually very kind to His enemies. He lets them wake up in the morning. He gives them their next heartbeat. Uh, He sends rain upon their field, even though they're His enemies. But that's not the only thing Scripture tells us about the Father and how He feels about the wicked and the sinner. In Psalm 11, verse 5 and 6, the Holy Spirit is talking in the Scripture, and it's talking about God, and this is what we read. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind, shall be their portion of their cup. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. It doesn't say the Lord loves the sinner but hates the sin. It says the wicked and those who love violence, God hates them. In fact, this hatred is so deeply ingrained the scripture writer can say God hates them from his very soul, which sounds pretty deep to me. Or, let's take another passage of scripture talking about the Father. Uh, This is Psalm 5, and verse 4 through 6 reads as follows. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors, abhors the bloody, bloodthirsty and deceitful man. These are just two examples I can turn to. There's about eight or nine of them in Scripture that says God hates the wicked. But not you. 
you're not allowed to hate the wicked because you're going to be more moral than God. Right? And it worked that way. God loves all his creation. God hates the wicked. And they are both true. Years ago, I was reading On the Incarnation by Athanasius. And there in the first part of the book, he establishes something that I think is very true. He says, you know, God says he loves all of his creation. That's why hell exists. Now, there's an interesting thought. Why would hell exist because God loves all his creation? Well, the answer is God could annihilate sinners and wicked people He could literally wink them out of existence so they did not exist in any way. But God doesn't do that because God will not suffer what he has created to go out of total existence. He loves what he's created. Hell keeps what he has created in a certain form of existence because to a degree he loves what he's made. But hell, on the other hand, is a very good testimony that God both loves and hates the wicked, hell is not a good place, and there is no redeeming quality to it. You see the hatred of God in hell. To quote um, Sproul, God doesn't send sin to hell, he sends sinners. And so in the very existence of hell you see the love of God and you see the hatred of God. They are paradoxical, but they are not contradictions. As most of you know, uh, yesterday we were at the, the abortuary in Louisville. There were surrounding the building volunteers people who have volunteered, they're not actually getting anything out of it, to come and defend the acts of murder that happened yesterday. By my count, there were 12 children that were killed while we were witnessing the gospel outside. And just as we had volunteered to go and share the gospel and the good news of Christ, this fairly large army of volunteers were there to make sure those child children were killed. Who are those people? What, would, what are they like? What, what is their spiritual condition? If you are going to volunteer your efforts to make sure children die, who are you? Biblically. You're the wicked, right? I mean, you're not the only wicked in Louisville, and there's lots of different ways to be wicked, but you're definitely the wicked. As I looked at those people, I had two reactions taking place inside of me at once, and they both were very legitimate. One is, my heart broke for them because I knew who they were and where they were going. They're children of Adam. They they have the image of God stamped upon their souls, um, that they have come to that place in their spiritual life is absolutely tragic. And my heart broke for them. 
but I also hated them. And I'm not apologizing for that, as you may figure out where this sermon's going to. I did love them. The sermon that was given preached the gospel, and they heard the gospel this Saturday, as they have heard it Saturday after Saturday after Saturday. My deepest desire for them was that they would repent and believe the gospel. And sometimes that happens, because God wills it to happen, and it happens. God can redeem the hardest, most wicked, diabolical person. There is nothing his arm cannot do. And as the Psalms have shown us, God is active in his creation. He is not silent. He is not just watching. The power of God is to do anything he wants. But that being said, that day there was about 20 people who aided and abetted the murder of children. God hates the wicked because of what they do. They destroy his creation. They trash what he has so lovingly given. And that is what Psalm 104 and Psalm 139 is really saying when it presents the glory of God's creation and his loving care for it and then turns to the wicked, it's holding them in relief to him. Look how good God is. Look at the care of God. Look at how he loves us. Given that fact, why do we desire the wicked to remain in the world? This is God's creation. This is God's goodness. The wicked are effacing it. They are blaspheming it. They are ripping it to pieces So the psalmist turns to God and says, Lord, you have been so good to us. Remove from your artwork the wicked. Now, he doesn't say, I'll give you a hand with that. But his will is that God's grace, his love, his mercy be all in all. And where the wicked are, they step all over it. And so the psalmist cries out, Lord, do I not hate those who hate you? They take your name in vain. Did you know that at the abortuary, often, there is an ordained Presbyterian minister who is one of the descorts. He has been ordained into the visible Church of Christ. He is a shepherd of the visible Church of Christ. But he is there to aid and abet murder. So when the psalm talks about someone taking the name of the Lord in vain, isn't that him? Or there was the man yesterday who, as the preachers would share scripture, would finish their quotations for him, showing that he knew scripture backwards and forwards. Isn't that taking the Lord's name in vain? Isn't that what Psalm 139 is talking about? There is a certain utter blasphemy to knowing the goodness of God and specifically working against it because you know it. And so, there is nothing in these psalms that free us from loving our enemies. God calls us to love them, to share the gospel with them, to to offer God's grace to them. But on the other hand, God hates the wicked. And you, therefore, shall be like God, says Christ. There is a spiritual war taking place. 
and it does not work against the glory of God to see the glory of God and so be motivated to cry out for the day when the kingdoms of our Lord shall be the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The kingdoms of this world shall be the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. When the knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth and the wicked shall be no more because they shall be under God's eternal judgment. Which brings us to how we always have to end a sermon from the Psalter. Where do we see Christ in these Psalms? Well, we see him in three particular places. In both Psalms, you see God actively doing things in creation. Uh, He is over them, and he is making them happen. Well, when you go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew... This is what Jesus says uh, the Father has said to him. It is Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So when you read Psalm 104 and you see God overseeing his creation and providing for his creation and loving his creation and renewing his creation, all of that has been assigned to the Son. So Psalm 104 is ultimately about Jesus of Nazareth because he's the one doing it. All authority has been given to him. Also, all of creation is about him and for him. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 through 18 This is the relationship of Jesus of Nazareth to the creation. He is the image of the invisible God. So when you see Jesus of Nazareth, you see God. God is what Jesus is and vice versa. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the ruler of it. All authority has been given to him. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So all of creation is about Jesus Christ. The hills surrounding this building are about Jesus Christ. Mount Vernon is about Jesus Christ. North America is about Jesus Christ. It's all through him. He created it in the beginning, and it's all for him. And he, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So the Lord Christ is actively involved in the world, doing what he wishes to have done. He's holding it all together. Modern science uh, has a number of questions that they're working on. One of them is, uh, what is the unified field theory? How how do we establish why everything stays together? Uh, Creation is made of, you know, little atoms, and atoms all stay together. Why do they do that? Well, they're they're not able to really give you a scientific model why. Well, here in Colossians and in Hebrews, we're told the entirety of God's creation is is being held together by Jesus of Nazareth. 
He is literally holding it all together. Why don't all the atoms go, you know, I think I'll do my own thing. It is because Jesus of Nazareth wills it not to be. He is holding everything in place. Everything is by him and for him, and Jesus is doing all things ultimately for the sake of his church and that he will have the preeminence. But then lastly, how does Jesus relate to this psalm? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 25 and look at verse 31 through 33, 41 through 43, and 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Jumping down to verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food, I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then dropping down to verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So when the psalmist in both cases, in Psalm 104 and in Psalm 139, comes to a crescendo and and asks the Lord, please remove the wicked, destroy the wicked, I'm totally against the wicked, I hate the wicked. Who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to the one who has received all authority. And the one who will, at the last, sit upon the throne of judgment, and he will divide the sheep from the goats, and he will say to the goats, your wickedness is noted, go into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this is gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who sends the wicked to hell? It is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Is the act of sending people to hell a demonstration of God's love and care? Well, ironically, a little bit, but they're not going to really feel that at that moment they're going to feel the utter hatred of God. To hate wickedness is a holy thing. To have a passion against wickedness is a holy thing. To harm a man made in the image of God is not. That is kept from you. The Lord says, Vengeance is mine, I shall repay, saith the Lord. But Jesus Christ hates the wicked and loves them. And that is ultimately what we are called to do as well. If you believe that God created all things out of nothing, that he holds them in the palm of his hand and keeps them together, that he loves his creation, that he has called a people to himself and cares for them, that he is active in the world and loves them, 
How can you not love what he loves and hate what he hates? May God bless this explication of his word.